Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in a damp and cool Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in the same conditions in South East London. We're delighted to have a wonderful guest. We are indeed delighted to have as our guest today very distinguished writer, performer, cricketer, long-time Somerset supporter, John Cleese. John, we're both immense admirers of your work. Oh, that's nice. So um, you can expect a lot of um, long hops and long half volleys today. Good, good. Rather like the Indian Maharajas in the matches when they came out to bat against their employees and their servants, who asked them, Your Highness, would you be gracious enough to hit this to the boundary? (laughs) John, you started watching um, cricket at Harrants Park, Western Supermare, which, of course, was another notable figure who shared that experience. It's almost exactly the same age as you. Did you ever run into uh, the young Geoffrey Archer? Well, not until just before I left Western Superman, which was a little bit after that. We left Western in 1953 because I needed to go to Bristol to go to Clifton as a day boy. And um, uh, we sold our little flat to Jeffrey's stepfather. Isn't that extraordinary? And my dad afterwards said, well, it's one of the very few people I've ever met who I really didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, I mean, you must have been at the matches because you were both cricket fans, weren't you? I mean, Jeffrey was. Yeah, yeah. You must well, have been keeping. Right. 1948 was the high point of the year because there wasn't a lot going on at Western Superman. You know, there was a pantomime, and at Easter there was a hockey festival, and teams came from all over the uh, all over Britain to play in that, and that was fun. But the big thing was three matches in August in Clarence Park. And, you know, the whole place went from a, to a park where people just wandered around a bit and kept off the special bit in the middle, um, which was staked off. And, and uh, suddenly there were tents and Arthur Wellard bowling. And it was just, uh, it was magic for me. I'd never felt so alive. And I can remember those games, not the details of them, but the atmosphere. And they just touched me to, the, touched me to my heart. Tell us about that Somerset team. I can't tell exactly who was there in 48 and who was there in 50 and 51. But all I remember is that they really weren't very good. Mm. But I adored them anyway. Arthur Wellard opened the bowling and uh, he was um, he was famous for hitting sixes. Because in those days, I don't remember sixes being hit except by... Uh, nine ten Jack, uh, you know they, they they all came in and swung the ball. It was an off spinner called uh, Ellis Robinson who used to go down on one leg, batted left-handed, and hit two sixes to square leg and then be out. Uh, but Wellard was phenomenal, and I remember he hit one that went so high it came down on a tent, went through the roof, and there was a clatter of breaking crockery. It was wonderful. And then um, we had uh, Harold Gimlet who, of course, had played for England and was an absolutely extraordinary player. I mean, he has hit the first ball of the innings for six, you know. And uh, he was a great figure, a gloomy man, unfortunately. 
Um, I once saw him at Taunton and he was lost in his thoughts at the beginning of an over. He was walking back towards the boundary and I was almost in direct line with a shot that came from the first ball, which was a skimming six over mid-off and it was coming towards him and he hadn't even turned round. Gracious and somebody me. shouted, he spun round, tried to catch the ball and it knocked him backwards and he banged his head on a bit of scaffolding that had been erected at that point in the stand. Um, and uh, th there was a, a gloomy quality to it, but when he was hitting, he was a six hitter too. He was wonderful. Then we had, I think it was a Leslie Angel or an Eric Hill who used to open the batting with him and sometimes managed to get into double figures. <laughs> and then the big, uh, the big excitement was in, in August, you see, the schools went on holiday. And at number three, we had Mickey Walford. And at number four, we had Hugh Downs from Downside, both schoolmasters who never played until the holidays. And then they came, and at that point, we became quite a good team because they used to make a lot of, a lot of runs. But Peter, you, you, uh, you knew Mickey. Well, Mickey Wolford taught, taught me economics at uh, Sherburn School, actually. Most of the uh, housemasters at Sherburn had actually played cricket for either Somerset or for Sh Dorset, more likely. Right. Um, my housemaster, Derek Bridge, who became secretary of the Minor Counties Cricket Association, he played for Dorset. Sam Hay, who might... Uh, and Mickey Walford, of course, who, who I think if he played all the time, would have played for England. But then we had some other great characters. I mean, my favorite was this delightful guy, Bertie Pugh. God knows why I idolized him because he was not a great player. <laughs> he was pretty good. Had the most eccentric run up that I've ever seen, which I learned to mimic and can still remember today. And um, he used to bowl these little seamers and move. And the extraordinary thing was, I learned sometime later that Len Hutton, who was the greatest opening batsman in England, was his rabbit. He always used to get Len Hutton out, which is terribly funny. We had a very good wicketkeeper called Harold Stevenson. Richard, you said he was on the verge of the England team. Harold Stevenson, yes, he was. And he went on an MCC tour of Pakistan, a sort of A tour of Pakistan, which ran into a lot of um, problems. Well the, well, the tour of Pakistan was in 56. The A team went to Pakistan. It's the notorious tour led by Donald Carr, where in Peshawar, the England team got fed up with the umpiring. Uh, of, <laughs> what a surprise. Of this yeah. <laughs> beg a rather punctilious and self-important man, I think, a bit of a showman. Uh, anyway, after a dinner, they uh, went back to his hotel and they kidnapped him. <laughs> Including, I, I, had, I can't remember the role of Harold Stevenson in this uh, unsavoury episode. I think he was in that. I think he was one of the bad boys from memory. <laughs> <laughs> and they took yeah, him back I, to I think he perpetrated hotel. the outrage. Part of the they, outrage. Yep. And they said, would you like a... They put him in a chair and said, would you like a drink, Idris? Brian Close was at the heart of all of this, as you can imagine. Oh, yes. uh, at one stage, according to Close, Beg made a bid for freedom and it was brought down <laughs> by a rugby tackle. And um, <laughs> taken up to... Drink, Peter. So what, what was the problem? Well, he wouldn't, didn't want to drink. He wanted to drink alcohol, unlike the England team, who'd had plenty. Yes. Um, and... Uh, they chucked a couple of, unleashed a couple of buckets of water over him. And there he was <laughs> spluttering. I mean, it's not that far. It wasn't. T anyway, at that point, uh, 
A.H. Carter, the very stern, anti-British, anti-colonial, quite, I mean, he was appalled by this act of what he saw as uh, colonial in oppression. Post and uh, it created an enormous international incident where the English team was virtually sent home and there was, it was very embarrassing. Uh, but it's, it's, it's what well, it's probably... in the series, though? I mean, did, did, did we survive the umpiring or what? Well, they, they felt that he had given out a number of England players in a very in a crucial match who who weren't out and had failed to lift the finger when the Pakistani players were in but uh, it was certainly a quite a moment in in English cricketing cricketing his and Stevenson I'm afraid the Somerset man was at the heart of it oh fascinating but in those days of course the the home side used to provide the umpires indeed so Idris Beg was a home by the way, we provided our umpires, I'm thinking of D.B. Constance and others as well, who were equally open to criticism. And it was Imran Khan, a Pakistani, who uh, got rid of that. He, he was the one who lobbied to have uh, in, in neutral umpires. Third party. Third I think that was a great, a great moment, because when a decision goes wrong, there's always a bit of at the back of our mind thinking, are they on the other guy's team? You know what I mean? And that's so natural, that kind of paranoid thinking. When you get under pressure and a decision goes against you, I think bringing in the international umpires was all important. But Peter, when did they bring in international umpires? I think that well, it was... As a direct result of Imran Khan insisting on it, and I th and, it, and it was very much influenced by the English umpiring, constant one thinks of in particular in the those that early nineteen eighty two series when it, Pakistan suffered a lot of bad decisions and should have won I think that series and didn't. Abdul Qadir, our friend Abdul Qadir, suffered very badly at Constant Sound, so badly, Constant couldn't read his deliveries at all. He's a great leg spinner. You might relate to this, John, you were one yourself. And um, Abdul Qadir used to announce his deliveries in advance to Constance. So he'd, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd actually understand what was going on. It's a top spinner, you know, boom. And if it hit, it hit the pads, it's probably out. <laughs> so that Constance could then signal this to the batsman, the English batsman. Oh, God, how funny. <laughs> Well, return to that wonderful, the Somerset team that you're talking about, I checked it um, last night because you, I knew you were coming on. They, they came bottom of the county championship at least, well, the three years I can consult in my wisdom, three years in a row. I think they were bottom six years out of seven. And I don't know why, but it still mattered terribly that they won a game at Western Supermare. Oh, in those days, of course, Morris Trimlett, now, he was uh, quite a, uh, what's the word, aggressive, fast, medium bowler. He was a big man like his son and grandson, who played, both played for Hampshire, didn't they? Tim, Tim Tremlett Tim Tim yes. played for Hampshire, yeah. yeah. Yep. Was, that, was, that the, was that the grandson or the son? Son. Tim Tremlett was his son. Really? I think. Yep. Well, anyway, I, I saw something at Clarence Park in about 49. And I want to tell you guys, in case there's someone else around who's old enough to remember it and corroborate it, because I remember I was standing for some reason in square leg, not in the line of the bowler's arm. And, uh, and Tremlett started to bowl and over. 
And it was a moment of embarrassment that I still carry with me to this day because he, he completely lost control. And the over went on and on and on because he was spraying the ball all over the place. And if it wasn't a wide, it was a no ball. And I remember this pall of sickening embarrassment that settled over the crowd. And I think I'm right in saying he never bowled again and became a first-class batsman. Now, Richard, how much of that is rubbish? You're absolutely right, John. Really? Um, he, he was a famous victim of the yips, as um, uh, you know, as we call it. And, uh, and it was extraordinary to watch because, as I say, the embarrassment, the feeling of dread in the crowd, willing him to bowl just one valid ball to progress the over was terrible. And I think I carried that with me all my life, or at least for the first 30 years in show business, the sort of fear that one day I would be embarrassed in public in the way that Maurice Tremlett was. Because it, it had such an effect on me of how awful it is to be humiliated in public, which of course happens a lot to comedians, more than to cricketers. <laughs> and of course to politicians, you know, you lose, you, you forget, you lose your way in a speech, as famously happened to Randolph Churchill, I think, at the end of his career uh, in, in, about, in the 1880s. But did that ever happen to you, uh, John? Yes. In the very beginning of my career, when I used to do the Frost Report with Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett, and um, to 14 million people live, and I'd never even been on television before. So for someone of 24 who had no television experience, it was absolutely terrifying. And I used to lie in bed the night before, running the lines obsessively, and I had to get it right three times, and then I'd try to get one more, and then get it wrong, and then panic and keep practicing it all night, and not be able to sleep. Horrible. And then I did a sketch with Ronnie Corbett once, which was set at a, a drinks party, and we were just sort of, you know, exchanging chat. And we got to a particular bit of dialogue, and it had been cut during rehearsal, and then reinstated, and then cut. And then on the day it had been reinstated, and possibly cut, but I got to it and I thought, oh God, is it still in or not? And in that moment, I went absolutely rigid, you know, real terror. I mean, far, far worse than facing Jeff Thompson. And I just stood there and, and, and I, I just forced myself to keep talking. And at the end of the sketch, got out of the wings, I was almost shaking. I, I, it was such a horrible experience. And I said to Ronnie Corbett, I'm sorry about that. I said, do you think of any... Sorry, do you think anybody noticed Ronnie? You had a wonderful dry way about him. Said, "Well, I think they were a bit puzzled when instead of saying, I think you must be the shortest person I've ever met, you said, I think you must be the tallest person.'" <laughs> and I got home that night to bed and just burst into tears. You know, because it's me. It was. It was always proving myself, like a lot of comics in my early days, it was, it was always a sense that you had to win the audience over and they were a bit out to get you. I mean, comics do talk about the audience as, as almost as an enemy, and then they come out and say, I died or I killed them. So that business about living or dying, you see, actors never say, 
I died. They act as bore people, but they never die. Do you see what I mean? Yes. To me, no, you're supposed to get a laugh. And if you don't, it's terribly embarrassing. Anyway, that was Morris Trimmett started me on that rant. But it's very interesting comparison. Hmm. And if you look at that Somerset team, I mean, the pressure, it, there is that pressure. You know, Harold Gimlet ended up killing himself, didn't he? I mean, this wonderful, joyful talent, the man who could just re you know, he played so beautifully for so many years, dominated the batting, and yet in the end, you know, as you, that, that what you were saying earlier, you saw him at, at long off, and you saw this man who was absolutely in the depths of despair. There's a, there's something about that, isn't there? Oh, it was terribly sad when I think back on it that the ball, bowler was bowling and Harold hadn't even turned round. He was still walking towards the outfield. Very sad. And then when the ball not only surprised him, but made him fall backwards and he banged his head on the scaffolding, he was, you know, I mean, my heart went out to him. Even then, I was probably about 12. But that was at Taunton. But we did mention, not mention one guy, Horace Hazel. Oh. Now tell us about slow him. Left arm, I seem to he remember. was a slow left armor, orthodox slow left armor. And there were two remarkable things about him. One was that he once bowled 13 consecutive maiden overs and he held the world record for the longest. And that's what he did. He bowled absolutely impeccably every on the spot every time but what was terribly funny about horace and it was typical of that somerset team is that he was fat <laughs> and i don't mean he had a little bit of a tummy i mean he was really fat and it was terribly funny because when he was bowling they tossed the ball to him and he'd walk back to his mark and then there'd be about 10 seconds of him wrestling his trousers up <laughs> so that he was in a state to bowl and when he was in the field and the ball got hit towards him <laughs> The only way he was going to stop it is if he trod on it while trying to get out of the way. I mean, we had bad fielders in those days who just young people now just wouldn't believe. I remember Burgess, Budgie Burgess in the final against Northampton in 1979. I remember him stopping the ball with a boot because he couldn't uh, lean down. And in the, you know, Lords. <laughs> Yeah, but Somerset, it was quite normal that that, that, Bert, that Bertie Buse would do this extraordinary run-up like an Edwardian butler about to deliver the tea on a tray. And then <laughs> Horace at the other end, hauling his trousers up every ball, not just at the beginning of the over. And you can see why I love them so much, because they were, in a way, <laughs> pretty hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 13 maidens in a row isn't actually a world record. There's an Richard, you know everything. Papu Narkani holds it in Who? a test match. Indian slow left arm bowler of the 60s, Papu Narkani, once bowled um, 22 maiden overs in a row in a, in a test match against England. Mostly, no. against Ken, mostly against Ken Barrington, which is perhaps no surprise. In a match England were trying to save, he bowled 22 maiden overs, and I met him sort of 40 years afterwards after the event at a reception, and he's very proud of his achievement, but he was furious that it, it had been ended by a misfield. 
Ah, <laughs> and we're off, you know, and they, England had been able to take a single. And he said, I could have bowled another 20 if they'd let me, you know. <laughs> and I have once played with Ken Barrington. Would you believe that, Peter? Well, he was he's one of the most underrated British batsmen of all time, if you ask me. If you look at his record, tell us about batting with He's a lovely man, too, I think. Well, I, I went on tour to Corfu with the Lord's Taverners, and it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, at one end, we had John Price, England, fast bowling. At the other end, we had Roy Kinnear bowling, left arm slow. It was an extraordinary mixture of very, we were wonderful old international and, and uh, show business rubbish. And it was so much fun. And of course, we were in Greece, so we weren't called the, the Lord's Taverners. We were called the Lord's Taverners, which was <laughs> a very good bit of adaptation. And um, we, it was just a wonderful experience. And I got to know Ken a little bit. We used to play a silly game called pool cricket, uh, where everyone was in the water. And of course, you could dive around for catches and all that. And I remember him explaining to me, because of his height, that somehow his height was the perfect height for dealing with fast bowling where the ball was coming up a lot, was lifting off the pitch, because he was able somehow to get completely behind his bat and and protect himself and at the same time not lose control. I remember that. All I those remember. innings he played against, you know, Charlie Griffith, Wes Hall in the 60s yeah. and saved England again and again. Talking about the mental strain of cricket, he's another example. He couldn't sleep the night before a match. Really? And if you looked at his face, it was really lined. And he just, the, the nervous energy uh, and mm. before yeah. going into bat and while he was batting was so immense. I, I think that's why he, he had that very early heart attack and died very early as well. Just that mental stress. But he was a complete giant in the middle order for England for so many years. Yeah, I think that we, we sometimes forget the incredible pressure that's on people, mm. you know? Sometimes somebody coming on to bowl. Do you remember a few years ago, they brought in a, a, a young Lancashire bowler and he could have got... The off-spinner. Yeah. And he was killed by the Australians. Yeah. I think his name is it was Simon Kerrigan in his... Yeah. I think well, he had one test, test and he completely and he lost his action. Murdered, uh, and it, it, you could imagine how terrible it is. And I feel so sorry sometimes, particularly for the the, the batsman who gets an unplayable ball, as Joe Ro Root did recently, two or three times. Absolutely unplayable ball in the first ten runs, and and then you're out and you're walking out, and the audience, the, the, the crowd is trying to sort of pretend to clap a little bit, and it, it, it's absolutely awful the stress they must be under in fact one quite sometimes i'm quite amazed watching them that they're apparently having quite a good time out there i don't know how they manage it <laughs> at least if you're a bowler john you get a second chance don't you yes exactly a second or third chance i mean um the worst that can happen to you is to, is to you know is that you get hit for six and you can always be taken off yeah or, or taken yeah. you might but, get arrested batting it's a sort of terrible that's the end. Finality the end of, of your day. All, which yeah. is so, and the arbitrariness of it, it can just be a piece of bad luck, not, not a bad shot. Well, it can be and bad umpire. merciless, <laughs> you lose your place. How did you start playing cricket, John? Well, I mean, uh, I just started at, at St. Peter's School, Western Supermare, the prep school, 
that I was at when I first saw Somerset. And um, I uh, was fascinated by it. I, I was really almost obsessed by it. I remember the first time I bowled in a match, I was actually memorizing my own figures as I was bowling, dot, dot, two, dot, wicket. I was actually memory. So that shows how extraordinarily obsessed I was. But, but I was never terribly good. Uh, I mean, I think I made a few runs in my last year. I was captain of cricket. And the funny thing was I could never really find a, an action. I used to be able to imitate other people's action, especially Bertie Buse's. But I couldn't really find an action. And the other thing was I was so pathetically tall. I was six foot when I was 12. And I was a bag of bones. I had very little strength. So I could sort of get the right form with the strokes forward defensive but i couldn't hit the ball off the square and when i went to, 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 to clifton this is sort of went on i wasn't terribly good and somehow i always finished up in the teams you know the the colts or whatever they were called uh, because i sort of looked as though i ought then well then what happened somewhere around the time when i was about 16 i went out of the nets one day and we had a nice teacher there called tom penny and tom just for no particular reason showed me how to flight a ball and i'd never understood about flighting a ball before and suddenly i started flighting the ball and became quite a good off spinner not a leg spinner, an off spinner. I had a slightly longer run than I should have, but then I bowled quite good stuff. And when I got in the first 11, um, very frequently, because the coach there was Reg Sinfield, who was a great old Gloucester player. And I think he played, Richard, he played for England once or twice. Played for England and as an off spinner. Yeah. That's right, as an off spinner. And uh, he took over coaching me and I actually got quite good for a time. And, and uh, it was, I had a special relationship with Reg and he would sometimes uh, say, you put your pads on, I want you to come and bat. And I did that twice and found the guy bowling at the other end was David Allen, who of course went off to, went on to bowl off spin, not just for Gloucester, but also for England. And when the, when the Gloucester players, the second 11 players used to come and play against the Clifton first 11, they used to find it a little harder for me to get away because I, I bowled a slightly shorter length than the others and it was a little quick, quicker through the air. Um, and I loved it. I just loved bowling. I loved experimenting. And um, I, I was a, a very correct batsman, but unbelievably weak. So they started with me opening the innings, and I was still there after an hour, but I made about three runs, so they put me straight down to number 10. Yeah. Um, but I was quite a good spinner for a time, particularly in the very middle of the season, Peter, because the... Um, Obviously, the cricket pitch moved across the uh, centre of the ground during as the, the um, uh, pitches became worn, they moved on a bit. And there was a time when bowling from the brick schoolhouse was there um, over the sight screen, you see. So I was bowling <laughs> a red brick ball. <laughs> Well, from over the sight screen and out of the background of a red brick building, and I became almost unplayable for about three weeks. You and you and Joel Garner had the same advantage, John. Yes, that's right. What a lovely man! In '76, they actually came to my house, all of them, for dinner, 
And uh, I remember meeting them all and also thinking what a quiet young guy uh, Mark Lathwell was. And this mm. was really before Marcus had become his opening partner. And uh, then that awful business when the England selectors, what year was that, Peter? When, when short, Shane Warne was leashed upon us. Well, Mid 80s, was it, Richard? He bowled the ball of the century in 1993. 1993. That's the ball, ball, the ball which dismissed Gatting, or as late as that, was yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the England selectors plucked this young talent, huge young talent out and put the, put the poor bugger in at number six against Shane Warne. And of course, he uh, couldn't, couldn't manage it. And then, to my astonishment, this highly promising young cricketer just disappeared. That's what you're talking about here, yeah. Yes, lost lost talent. Of course, at that moment, uh, I think uh, Treskovic, almost, they they were opening, I think, for a short period together, and then Treskovic went on and made a huge success of it. Lovely man, I've met him a few times. He's an absolute, he was such an exciting and clean-hitting and fearless batsman, wasn't he, Treskovic? Yes, I mean, it's fascinating when you think of the way he just, Hit the ball. You know, there wasn't all that emphasis on style, but he just hit the ball. <laughs> and uh, he was glorious to watch. And it was very odd that I'm fascinated. I would love to talk to him about one day what it was about traveling that because he didn't, he functioned wonderfully in this country, but he did get homesick, didn't he? Terribly. He wrote about it. Yes, he opened out in his book. Mm. I just, can, I've got your figures in front of me from Wisdom 1957. So this is 1958. This is your, this is your record for Clifton College. You were two years in the Clifton first, first 11. Your right. first year, you were actually third in the batting averages, averaging 22. Really? And third in the bowling averages, averaging a, a very impressive 13.15 uh, with quite a few wickets, That's with 13 not, wickets, actually. How many wickets? 13. That's not bad. That's not bad. No. An average of 13 is very smart. And you played the following year. And actually, 13 was a good number for you because I also looked at how you did when you got to Lords. They didn't really bowl you much uh, when you played Tunbridge, but you you were not out 13. It, you actually rescued the team, Clifton, batting at number 10, as you say. You came in with a score at um, 108 for 105, and you, you were 13 not out at the end when you were all out for 139 and you won the game. so, And you scored 13 not out in the, the second innings as well at Lords in 1957. Yeah, I do remember 13 not out in both images, both innings because uh, the, hardly, you know, 13 and all that. And the, the next time I went out about the next year, I was out the very first ball. You the, were indeed. And uh, only batted once. I noticed in the Tunbridge team, they had a certain RM Prido. Yes. Who went on? You, who you must have probably bowled against, actually, because he scored eighty nine. Against him, yes, that's right. I I bowled two overs against him, and I never bowled again. But I do remember. I think the year before they'd won uh, six times in a row, and in fifty seven. Uh, they went into bat first, and we had a very good fast bowler called John Cottrell. And with the first ball of the match, he bowled a left-handed opener. Hmm? Yes. So, M.S. Connell, he bowled, by the way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not for one. And then Prido came in and was caught behind the wicket two balls later by By Chris. a certain Pickwode. Yes, caught Pickwode, bowled Cottrell. Yeah. That's right. And, and they were naught for two. And a slightly drunken Cliftonian came out of the Tavernas bar and shouted, Come on, Tunbridge, give us a game. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... I got a match in front of me, and it was you won by a hundred runs that match. We did. We, we we were a good team actually, a very good team. When we had Richard Bernard captaining us, who went on and played several times for Gloucester, Gloucester and Cambridge. Yep. He, Richard Richard Bernard was related to W. G. Grace. No, he was. Uh, it was a big. It was quite a burden to him in his career, being you know every every time every time he failed, it was you know W. G. Grace's relative fails again. Yeah. Ah, yeah, but he was in some way related to W. G. Grace. Um, Lovely guy, and he was captain, and we had some very good players. And as I say, we won, we beat Tunbridge both years, so I was always very happy about that, and it didn't seem to matter. In fact, the only time I felt bad, this is true from the heart, the only time I felt bad uh, about being out first ball is when after the innings I went to see my dad, and I could see how, you know, it had upset him or disappointed him. And it, I didn't think it, it hadn't particularly because we had, you know, the team spirit thing was very strong in those days. I felt it doesn't matter that I'm out first ball because we have enough runs to beat them, you know? I don't think many people think about it this way anymore because the, the, the lovely thing about cricket used to be uh, that phrase, well, that's not cricket. And yeah. you could imagine saying that's a Donald Trump. You had a very notable victim in your Clifton career. Tell us, tell oh, us how you yes. dismissed him Twi well, twice, I think. Dennis Compton said, sent his uh, son to Clifton, and uh, one day, um, I'm not sure if it was 57 or 50, I think it was 58, um, uh, he came down to play against us. and. Uh, I said to Reg, well, what do I do? And he said, well, you know, Dennis Compton's famous for coming down the wicket. He said, just keep bowling the wall wider and wider. So I said, all right, I'll try it. And then when uh, Compton came in, I said to Chris Pickwood, you just mentioned, Peter, I said, uh, I'm going to keep bowling it wider and wider, and, you know, hope he's going to miss one. And I remember he said to me, well, you can do that if you like, but I'm not going to stump him. I want to watch him back, which was a little bit encouraging. Like foil plan A, yes. <laughs> and I saw Chris a few years ago. He's in Montreal, uh, and he became an accountant, so serve him right. Um, and uh, so uh, Dennis Compton started coming down the wicket and I did bowl a wider one and he missed it. And the ball turned quite a lot straight back over the top of the stumps. And as Chris Wickwood stood there, he reversed his hands instead of having them cupping to, you know, face the palms facing towards the... <laughs> Turn the gloves round so that the ball hit the back of his gloves. He was that short, determined not to, to stump um, Compton. And the ball shot in the air and then came down on the stumps. And the bales fell off and there was this silence. And I simply did not have the balls to say, how's that? And Pickwell, bastard, just picked the 
bails up as they knock it down, <laughs> put on the stunts again, threw the ball back to me. And I thought, I've got Dennis Compton out and no one will ever know. <sighs> and then in the next over, I bowled him a rank full toss and he hit it straight to Ken Whitty at mid on. And thank God, Ken was playing his first game. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Hit the 11, so he didn't dare to drop it. Oh. So he hung on to it, and so I got him out twice in two overs. So that was Compton still at the height of his. It sounds like you were toying. It sounds like you were toying with him, John. I mean, he was just 57. Compton was uh, just retired from England, I think, that year. Yes, I thought probably two or three years later. But uh, no, that was that was my moment of glory. John, you mentioned the Lords Taverners. Um, did you play much cricket after Clifton? Did you play no, at all I was at Cambridge? Going to. I'd intended to, but what I discovered was what uh, I, I felt that the club cricket at Clifton was. Uh, I, I tried it for a short period, and this is sort of interesting because I suddenly realised uh, the fielding was really not very good, and, and the Clifton team, you know, had a lot of young, quite fit men who, and one or two of them, like Pickwood and Ian Arthur's, were wonderful. Wonderful uh, fielders. Um, but once I started bowling off spinners for club cricket, then the, the balls that would have been stopped in the covers went through and catches went down. And I suddenly thought, this isn't terribly profitable. And it does seem to take up an awful lot of time, whereas squash doesn't, and I get more exercise. So I just decided, and also I remember I played a very bad shot and, and had my stumps rearranged. And as I got out and sat in the pavilion afterwards, um, the guy who'd been down the other end said, oh, Johnny, you've got a brute of a ball there, bad luck. And I remember thinking, you know, it wasn't a brute of a ball. I played a very, very bad shot. And I said, it was awful lot of it seemed to be sort of boosting each other's ego. And I just kind of got bored, got bored with it and, and didn't, didn't play again. I, I tried it a little bit at Cambridge, but didn't enjoy it so much because after I left Clifton, when I was quite good, I spent two years teaching at a prep school, my old prep school. And uh, what I found was that I was standing in the middle of the wicket throwing half volleys to 12-year-olds, and then I certainly sort of lost my action by the time I got to Cambridge. But I never regretted not playing more, because I think I would have been good. And I think if you're going to, you've got to be very good to go on, because it's a huge investment of time. I think, I think Richard and I um, would challenge you on that point. Neither of us are much good, and we certainly have gone on so we still well, play we, we, we came 40... in the twilight of a career that never really had a dawn yep mm. um, <laughs> how long how long does it take you in a day if you play in a match it starts what time and finishes what time and to be honest it's quite a long time because you've got to have breakfast and put on your you know get your kit together and drive off to the to the game um play go to the pub and once all that's happened um you know, it's the end of the day. So it's the whole day. Yeah, but I still find I love the game so much because of all the games, you know, the, the games have changed so much. You know, you take rugby football, which is still very fine to watch, but it, except it looks like rugby league now. Um, the only difference is you don't give the ball up after the sixth tackle. Do you see what I mean? But you've got them all a line stretch and people trying to hammer their way through the middle. And of course, the big difference is that people who used to be in the scrum, uh, big people, are now on the wings. And the people in the scrum are enormous. 
not ordinary human beings. And that seems to me to be fascinating as a sort of spectator sport, but kind of a just ordinary people can't really expect to compete anymore. And that's the sadness and that's bringing money into it and having professionalism and there's no other direction to go. And uh, soccer now, well, when I used to support Bristol City, if I could have played two games for them, I could have died happily. I was so mad for Somerset cricket in Bristol City, you know, and Bristol City had six guys there from Bristol. And when they when they packed up, they used to have a sports shops and all that kind of thing. And so there was a real sense of identity. And now, yeah. you have- like, I mean, it is true. Jack Hobbs is a, you know, his father was the groundsman at Jesus College, and then the, you'll remember at Cambridge it was the Jack Hobbs Sports Shop, uh, and that it's just also. And he was the greatest batsman of his age. Yes, yes. So you stopped playing, but to what extent did cricket? Uh, can continue to influence you. I mean, the cricket mad major in Forty Towers. It, it, to what extent is that? Was that any resemblance to you? I think more to my father, actually. I mean, it's a total caricature of my father. And when Connie Booth and I were writing it, we used to laugh more at the major than anything else. But there was a sort of gentleness, a genial. You know, my dad was in India uh, between, I think, from about 1919 after he came out of the First World War, and I think he stayed there till about 22. He was in Bombay and Calcutta, and he went on to Hong Kong. What he told me about Bombay, you know, is, is to some extent formed my views about imperialism because they had a condescending attitude towards the Indians, but there was no nastiness about it. You know, they liked the Indians and the Indians liked them. Dad shared a house in Bombay with P.G. Woodhouse's brother. Good heavens. Oh, I mean Woodhouse. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary. And uh, they, when, they, when he first got that house, they had 14 servants. And he, Dad said, well, we don't need all these servants. And then the servants came along and said, look, I'm afraid it is your duty to employ us. <laughs> <laughs> so he employed 14 servants. But there was a niceness about it. The funny thing was, is do you know about the quadrangular matches? Mm. Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Well, I Tell mean, it's about extraordinary to the Hindus playing, where the whites were called Europeans, yep. the Muslims played, and the Farsis played. Yes. Right? The Persian-speaking folk. Played. They were the first to play, first actually, ones. when it started off. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it started off with the Europeans and the Farsis, who were very good. When they were all playing those games and having quite good time, as far as I could make out, the quite a sporting atmosphere. It's very interesting to think this was in the heart of empire, you know. And we have to believe now that, or we are asked to believe that everything about empire is bad. No, I think it's like anything else on this planet. Some of it was good and some of it was bad. Some of it was very bad, but there were still very good aspects to it. And I think that uh, Indian's democracy, now under threat by Mr. Modi, was very much a, a beneficial uh, inheritance from being part of the empire. And I just think the whole idea that something is all good and all bad is patently ridiculous. On the subject of sort of our, our grandparents or parents and their connections, my grandfather serves between the wars with David Niven in, in, I think it was Malta, and says that he was the most fabulously nice person. 
I did a movie with him in the 70s in Rome, and he was an absolute darling. He was so funny. He took uh, my wife, Connie Booth, and, and the actress who had a smallish part, I've forgotten her name, and took us out and we sat in the open air in a square in Rome, and he told quite simply the funniest stories I've ever heard in my life. And he had a lovely, slightly naughty sense of humor because he'd invited the editor along. And he said to us beforehand, which was very naughty, he said, I love this editor and he's a wonderful editor and a very nice man, but he does have the most terrible teeth. <laughs> he said, when I make him laugh, he will refuse to display his teeth. So he would tell us one of these outrageously funny stories and then immediately afterwards glance at the editor who was howling with laughter but with his mouth shut. <laughs> That's, cru That's cruel. <laughs> David Niven is a great cricketer. He's a great habitué of the Hollywood Cricket Club, as you probably know. You probably know. And he used to play, he said that he used to play uh, at country houses, that these young guys, they had no money but they were nice looking and well spoken and they had some clean uh, cricket trousers and they get invited to play in these matches and they would get full dinner um, uh, and uh, breakfast and all that for two days while they played in the games. And he told me the most hilarious story about how he arrived late once and he arrived so late um, that the gong was sounding as he came into his bedroom and they said you will come down straight away will you and he said yes but he had to go number twos first. <laughs> and he ran around this country house and couldn't find a loo <laughs> anywhere. So he went and got a copy of his Times and crapped into the Times and he folded it in the newspaper and put it in the cupboard and ran downstairs and had dinner. And then <laughs> when he went back to his bedroom later to get rid of it, he opened the door and it was gone. <laughs> It had been fielded by the staff, and for the rest, the rest of his stay, he could sense they were sort of dodging and saying, he's the one. Who had a crack in, in, in the cupboard. That's great, that's great service. It's wonderful service, I've got to say. <laughs> Just taken away quietly without any comment. No comment. Yep. John, did you ever have a, quite a lot of the... There are other great actors who are very keen on cricket. Peter, Peter O'Toole and Trevor Howard were two of them, and they had a cricket clause in their, in their contracts, and they were, never worked on a Saturday of a Lord's Test match. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered if you'd ever managed to no, uh, have no, a provision I've like always, that in your, in your my career. My problem, I'm afraid, is that I think it's uh, ideal watching, uh, watching cricket and television because you're right behind the bowler's arm and you get several replays and you get very smart commentary. Now that the commentators are uh, former cricketers, I think it's a wonderful way to watch it. I don't want to go to the ground anymore. I don't need to. I can get quite excited in my own home, thank you. And if I want a drink, I don't have to get up and walk to the back of the pavilion, you know. I went to, went to Lords before I was in the team and I remember seeing Howard there being really quite surprised because Howard was an old Cliftonian 
unbelievably drunk. I don't think I'd ever seen anybody so drunk. When I told I was told later that uh, he a nice story about his obsession with cricket watches that he had finished filming and he um he uh, went off to, to to watch the test match that was just about to start and his wife rang up and said where's trevor yeah i thought he'd be back by now and they said well he's 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 gone to watch the first test and she said where are they over they, he said no no um perth beached up the movie without telling his wife <laughs> uh, Basil de Oliveira told me a uh, story about Trevor Howard. It was in that the Australia tour, 70, uh, 70 71. And uh, I think it was the Adelaide test. Uh, and England were facing defeats, but he was not out overnight, about 20 not out. Uh-huh. And Illingworth, the captain, instructed Basil, he said, look, get to bed early and uh, you've got a job to do for us tomorrow. And, he, and Basil, who liked to drink himself, and I think Howard doesn't emerge well from this story at all. He bumped into ha- Trevor Howard on the way back to the hotel and Howard said, come and have a drink and have another one. And come back to my room and about five in the morning. Oh, come on. Basil uh, emerged from Howard's room, having drunk a couple of bottles of whiskey, I think. And he turns up at the ground and Lingworth takes one look at him and knows exactly what's happened. Um, but however, Basil scored 117 and saved the game. No, yeah, yeah. I still think I it's still think it's reckless that. of Howard to have jeopardised the whole result of the Ashes by also, insisting. Uh, I'm afraid Donavera needs to take a little of the blame here, doesn't he? Nor uh, well, he was vulnerable, I think, to uh, persuasion on that front. <laughs> but I mean, the fact that he drinks all that at five in the morning and then he makes 119. I mean, how 117, is that? Yeah. How is that possible? Well, Gary Sobers. Gary Sobers made it possible, but he was a genius, yeah. Mm. And I think that quite a few of them, and Godfrey Evans, you know, they, they, there was a time when they when they would turn up in their dinner jackets from an all-nighter. Keith Miller was famous for it. Oh, yes, of course he was. And I, I remember that there were some night, days watching Somerset when Harold Stevenson's face did seem a bit more ruddy as he walked out to open the morning's play than he normally did. I think they used to have a wonderful time, those guys, you know? I think they probably knew they were fairly terrible. Uh, But every now and again, uh, Somerset sometimes used to suddenly produce a surprise at Lord's. Did you know that, Peter? No, I didn't know that. Yes, they something went. Something happened to them. Went to laws. They sort of pulled themselves together, and of course they were quite talented. It was just that there was a, a very relaxed atmosphere about. And then when I what happened after that is I I still followed cricket, but I didn't go to matches much because it seemed to take a lot of time. I just occasionally occasionally went, um, and I started the first thing in the new in the morning with the newspaper was the cricket score, you know. And now I watch watch them over the internet a lot of the time if I can't actually see the the, the play, and I've seen them. You know, I remember '79 when they beat Northampton because Peter Roebuck uh, fielded a ball and ran someone up the second run from mid-wicket, and I still remember that. And that was the moment when Northampton's chances went away. And I remember sitting in the stand after we'd beaten them, thinking, the world has changed. Somerset 
has won something. And there was almost a sense of disappointment about it. <laughs> Because the whole point about Somerset was that they never won anything. And this reputation is now lost. I remember this extraordinary paradoxical feeling as I sat there. And then I went on and on following them and I got to know some members of the team, particularly Brian Close. One or two of these uh, guys came in, some of the very top cricketers particularly captained them. Uh, we had the New Zealand captain, didn't we? Crow, Crow. Did you Crow, have Crow? Norton Crow. Right. Yep. Yeah. Then, of course, we had Justin Langer. So we've had these extraordinary, and Brian Close, we've had extraordinary injections of talent and discipline from outside, which is... For made- all that, you've never had a, won a championship, have you? And I was very struck by your um, intervention over Twitter when Banton made the decision to go to the uh, Indian Premier League, was it, rather than to uh, play in that that crucial Essex-Somerset game which decided the result this year of the um, Bob Willis trophy. Um, Why did you you feel so strongly about that? Well, I just, it's my generation, you know. I was once asked to play for Gloucester Seconds. Reg rang me up at short notice and said, could you come and play for Gloucester Seconds? And if I had, I, I could have claimed I was a minor counties cricketer. But I promised to go on another tour, so I said, I can't, I can't. What a shame. I would love to have done, but I went off on another tour. And, you know, sort of prior commitments. And after all, this was the first time that Somerset had, in a sense, been in a final for the county championship. Was You could argue it was the most important game we ever played. And this young chap goes off to India. Well, I know he makes a lot of money, and that's fine, but he's young. There's time to make money in the future. And then everyone was saying, but he'll learn so much from the IPL. And I said, well, he might learn quite a lot from being in the final, the only final Somerset I've ever been at, county championship final. And it just struck me that you don't let your teammates down uh, if you have a proper relationship with them. You just put your ego to one side. But nobody thinks like that anymore. It's more the American thing is, oh, this is his opportunity. It's just much more individualistic the attitude towards things. And I was upset with that. And everyone said, oh, we'll learn so much from being in the IPL league. And I said, so, so much that he'll be able to play next year's final, you mean? What sort of, res- well, it's interesting to know what response you got overall to that, um, John. How, how many people sort of lined up with you and what sort of generations did they, there's a generational divide in their responses? Yeah, there were 50-50, but I think the woke people sort of said, look, he's only a young chap, you know, go easy on him, he's a young chap. I said, but he's an England cricketer. What do you mean he's a young chap? You know, we've got people going out and playing soccer for us who are 18. They're still expected to behave like grown-ups. So I've, I found that I think it's this, the woke generation would always take, always look for a victim if you see what I mean. And and my generation was more, come on, uh, think of the team. I've looked at quite a lot of the Monty Python sketches about cricket, of which there are a number, and it always presents cricket as almost um, congenitally dull uh, (laughs) and boring. uh, With endless discussions about, oh, Gummy Allen said that. (laughs) You You portray it as a kind of, but it's not true. Why did you present it in that sort of way? Documentary, sure. I don't think that Eric was always very interested in soccer. 
and in cricket. So he and I had that in common. But I don't think Jones was interested at all. I don't think he was even interested in if Wales were playing rugby. And I don't think Michael had a vague idea of what's going on, but he wasn't a fan. Chapman had no interest at all. Although, uh, well, I was writing with him when Bob Willis took eight for 23 oh, or whatever it was. And I actually was it? got Graham to watch that. We, we were writing for Python. I said, you've got to watch this, Gray. And it was the only time I ever saw him interested in cricket. Uh, Gilliam, of course, doesn't know cricket from soccer. And um, that, I think it was just Eric and me were keen. But they, they Michael Palin was Palin keen cricket, keen. and he made a wonderful speech, actually, at the Lord's, at the Wisdom Annual Dinner. He was the speaker, and it was very good indeed. Really? But was it, did he, do you get the impression he was keen on the cricket? Oh, yeah, he was full of information about how he played in his backyard in, I think, Sheffield, was it, when he was growing yeah, up? Yeah, Sheffield, that's right. Yeah. I suppose he would have supported Yorkshire, but I don't ever remember... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think we, I mean, I remember we wrote a terribly funny sketch years ago for, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. And it was, it was, it was about the fact that Peter West and Brian Johnson and E.W. Swanton <laughs> were, uh, let's say, a bit out of touch. And they, they're commenting on a, on a match and they can't agree on anything that's happened. <laughs> yes, you also did a great, uh, you and Eric Idle, and yep. you, you were the commentator and Eric Idle would say, oh, uh, Gummy Allen said about this. Or, I do remember Plum Warner scoring 45. <laughs> and then, I, then he went on, you know, in 7 BC, they were saying this. And, uh, it was tremendous, actually. But, it, but, but somebody dropped out dead in the middle of it. I have yeah. no recollection of this sketch at all. But that happens sometimes. I saw a sketch once, I just switched the box on in England and they were showing it old Monty Python. I saw a sketch there and I watched it and I said I would have bet money that I'd never been in that sketch. I had no recollection at all. Uh, but no, that, that's really very, it's all very interesting. I must check out with my friend Sir Mickey Palin, as I call him. I must check that out with him. John, very, rather more recently, you played a cricket mad character, the schoolmaster, the Gov, in the uh, adaptations of the Spud novels by John van der Roet about a schoolboy in South Africa. That's so right. I just wondered if you'd had any, when you did those films, did you get any experience of cricket in South Africa? No, 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 at all? no, my best experience there was the first time that I'd ever worked with a totally multiracial crew. I mean, every language you could imagine. And it was a it was a lovely experience just to see how completely relaxed and accepting everyone was. And that was true of all three movies. So that was very nice. So extremely fond of the young guy who um, Troy Savan, who played uh, Spud uh, and has now become a huge pop star. And it was a lovely experience because, of course, the weather was good. Um, but it was a slight shame we couldn't play it, uh, play the, shoot the second movie in Michael House, which is the sort of South African Eton, as it were, because uh, after the first one, they said, oh, good heavens. Uh, no, they didn't say that. They said, well, they're, uh, I say they're, they're, what they're trying to make fun of us over here. They're trying to make fun of our wonderful school. And so they wouldn't let us shoot there a second time. Yeah. <laughs> 
So there are all these pompous people. So oh, you mustn't, you know, like when we were trying to get a castle to shoot um, a Holy Grail in, you know. Uh, no, no, you can't, you can't. You know, those are very irresponsible young men. They don't anything seriously. They wouldn't let us. We finally found a castle, which is now a tourist spot. People, Americans go to see Dune Castle and spend lots of money in the area because they love the Monty Python, the Holy Grail so much. There's always these people around saying, oh, no, we mustn't must make fun of something. Because, of course, pompous people do not like a humorous atmosphere because pomposity can't exist in a spontaneous humorous atmosphere do you see what i mean it Absolutely. has to be solemn in order for people to remain very self-important and dignified but pomposity is a gift for humorists isn't it of course oh yes it's all about it's all about the gap between who we could be if we were really homo sapiens and what we actually are which is sort of homo very sappy <laughs> John, you've been very active in, in Hacked Off on, um, on issues of media intrusion. And of course, all these issues have been pretty important in cricket over the years, um, mm. as well as in other fields, haven't they? Players in the old days used to enjoy a lot of protection against stories about them off the field. And two beneficiaries were notable beneficiaries were Walter Hammond and later Basil D'Oliveira. But, you know, compare the modern treatment of Ben Stokes. Um, on uh, which, uh, you know, you you commented very strongly, didn't you? Yes, I mean, uh, I think it's just nasty. I think most of the uh, journalists involved basically are sociopaths. Uh, they have no concern about other people's feelings at all. And I think this is why now, to broaden the subject a little bit, why we have such a disappointing lot of politicians these days. I think an awful lot of politicians who were decent people who used to go into politics for very good reasons uh, went in because they didn't expect to get their private lives um, destroyed. And now they don't go in, which is why I think the current standard of most of our politicians is very poor. And I, I trace that back to the press. Um, but what I discovered was when I first started being interviewed in 66, after, as a result of the Frost Report, was that the papers were pretty okay. Uh, certainly the quality papers, you could trust them. I remember being uh, interviewed by a Times correspondent, um, and uh, he was very nice. And when the piece came out, it was littered with mistakes because he hadn't bothered to take notes, but it was nothing vicious about it. And then ever so slowly, I began to see that it was getting nastier and nastier. And I was doing a big talk show once with uh, Norman Tebbit and Julio Iglesias. It was the Michael Aspel show. And something came up, and I don't know why, because I was, didn't speak out in those days. Um, I started to say how disappointed I was at the nasty turn that British newspapers had taken. And to my surprise, I got a very enthusiastic round of applause from the audience wasn't expecting it i watched the show two days later and they'd edited it out you see because they didn't want to say something about the papers because the papers might give them good press and people completely failed to understand how much power they had and of course when you have power and no real responsibility because these bodies that are supposed to be in charge presently ipsa 
absolutely hopeless because they're funded by the very newspapers they're supposed to be keeping some sort of control on. So I think we're in a terrible situation now. When we have a paper, uh, papers, it is very, very seldom that I do an interview with a paper because I cannot trust them to do an honest interview. These people have no moral compass at all. And with most people, even difficult people, there's usually an area where you can do a sort of a deal. And I would say to anyone, don't ever do a deal because they won't keep to it. They are cheats and liars and they're only interested in selling a lot of the next copy of the newspaper. They have no other thought in their mind. It's like Trump who wants to be president um, despite the fact that he's not doing any of the presidential duties. In other words, they have an incredibly important part to play in political life. How can you run a democracy if you can't rely on the information? But they just are trivial. And I put it down to Rupert Murdoch. I think when Rupert Murdoch took over the Times, made a certain number of commitments, not interfering with editorial stuff, and then, of course, he um, he immediately fired. What's the name of that wonderful guy who just died? Um, Harry Harold Evans. Harold Evans. Harry Evans. He fired Harry Evans and immediately broke his promise to the British government. And because he did not want to be a lord, which is why most of the press barons have kept their nose clean over the years, he just went down market and took the rest of British media with him. But my point about most of this nastiness is that they're completely trivial and they have no interest in correcting it. I sued about five times and won. And what happens is you get very small damages. You get, uh, you get uh, your costs, which is fine. And then you get a correction, as you know, below the fold on page 31, which no one ever sees. And the thing that, uh, that they refuse to do is to publish a correction of fact in the same prominence that the original story uh, w was given. And that, I think, is unforgivable. It's quite simply, it's not cricket. John, you've watched a lot of baseball as well as cricket, and um, you've done uh, a video, certainly, on the difference between cricket and baseball and why cricket's better. Um, just <laughs> what? Cricket is poised, many people think, to reconquer the United States. Um, but they, cricket needs to be explained to Americans. Uh, they need to know what's going on. And I just wondered if this is a role you might see yourself doing. Oh, I see. Well, I think if anyone asked me, I would, I would volunteer because I think it is, particularly as it used to be played. And then I think there was a time when it wasn't played in very good spirit. And now I'm astonished at how good the spirit is between the teams. I think it is a civilizing influence. I feel, feel, feel very proud that we invented this silly game and <laughs> played it in the 18th century. And it's now played, well, now I'm in Dubai at the moment, picking up a few crumbs of work. Uh, you know, Dubai is not a center of world cricket. You've got this massive country, uh, block of countries, India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, all playing cricket. And then you've got our Dutch friends and our Irish and Scottish and uh, and Welsh friends all playing cricket, and you've got Denmark, uh, uh, and then um, I, and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. I just think it's wonderful that this very decent game is a civilizing influence. You can compare with baseball, 
which is incredibly dull. <laughs> <laughs> John, I think it would be a, a wonderful thing, a great late service to cricket, if you could convert the United States to this, this, this wonderful game that you enjoy and we all enjoy so much. I've tried, but you see, here's the thing. When I say to an American, they say, well, how long does the match last? <laughs> you say, well, the really big international. What do they mean international? Because the Americans have carefully chosen to play sports that nobody else does. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the World Series is for the world, them. Uh, but what, when are you explain to them that international matches against other countries last for five days and sometimes there's a draw? They cannot understand that. I mean, they really cannot understand that. So that's the problem. I think <laughs> attention span. <laughs> I, I think the point is the American temperament is not basically a very quiet temperament. You know, they, 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 they love excitement. They love to be excited. And the point, I knew Mike Brearley at one stage very well. I haven't seen him for a long time. But he said, cricket's the only sport in which the adrenaline doesn't run all the time. And, and Americans need to be excited. You know, if they have a half time, they want a brass band or girlies jumping around in skimpy costumes or something. They can't just sit there and <laughs> chat with each other. They have to be entertained. And I think that T20 might take off in America because I've always defined that basically as cricket for people who don't like cricket, which is not to say that I don't enjoy it, but the essence of cricket is not T20. And I think that might work in America. But anything else is they don't have the attention span. John, it's been an absolute thrill and a joy talking to you and um, slightly envy you being in Dubai at the moment on this cold um, oh, yeah. well, that's grey yeah. English morning. As I say, well, thank you for having me because it's, uh, it's been huge fun and I think it's gone on for an hour and a half and I have not been bored for a second. So thank you. thanks to the two of you. It's so, it's so lovely of you to come on. and But at this stage, it's been we have fun. unfortunately to bring proceedings to an end. So it's goodbye from me. Peter O'Born in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in south-east London. And goodbye from John Cleese in Dubai.